Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I have experienced neutrality before. Even under the most favourable conditions you are treated badly. I have vowed never to be neutral again until I die. Frederick William, the Great Elector of Brandenburg, 1671 Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 27.6, The Swedish Deluges, part 4. Last time we bore witness to the collapse of Poland-Lithuania in the face of a combined Russo-Swedish invasion. King Charles Gustav of Sweden, by the end of 1656, had accomplished more than he could have dreamed possible in the years before. Yet, his job was clearly incomplete. Poland remained in existence thanks to its resilience and the inability of the Swedes to totally conquer it and occupy their larger rival. Meanwhile, as he attempted to deal with these logistical problems, the impact of such Swedish success had a noted psychological effect on the rest of Europe, who began to close ranks against the Swedes and whisper mean things about them when they left the room. The Dutch, Brandenburg, the Holy Roman Emperor and Russia had all reared their opportunistic and concerned heads and Charles Gustav must have been aware, by the end of 1656, of the growing anti-Swedish coalition, not just on paper, but also in European sentiment. In this episode, we examine the Danish decision to strike Sweden while the iron seemed hot, and we also assess the significance of Brandenburg's agreement with the Poles in September 1657, that provided it with full rights over East Prussia. I will now take you to the year 1657.
it was difficult to deny Sweden's success. On paper, Charles Gustav had achieved triumphs beyond the wildest dreams of the councillors or his predecessors. He had blitzed through Poland to the point that the Poles almost could not claim a state of their own. And he presided over a Swedish military greatness that inspired fear in the hearts of its enemies like never before. Yet, by early 1657, it was also difficult to deny that Charles Gustav had overstepped, and that he had lost sight of what his original aims had been in the summer of 1655, when the war against the hapless Poland had been launched. Back then it had been justified in the name of Sweden's strategic interests, with the aim of ensuring that Sweden gained at Poland's expense. Although nobody would fought Charles's campaigning during the Swedish tenure in Poland, he had undoubtedly bitten off more than he could chew. By appearing as a conqueror, Sweden had inflamed Polish opinion, created the rising that raged against them, and ensured a costly conflict. Sweden could not hold on to what it had taken, despite tremendous, stunning success against the once mighty Poland, a fighting withdrawal was keenly underway. It was not a disorganised withdrawal by any means, it was one of purpose. Charles Gustav, having fought tooth and nail to conquer and maintain Poland-Lithuania in vain for 18 months, had turned his attention to Sweden's other eternal enemy, Denmark. This time there was no ulterior motives, no dynastic implications, and no strategic necessity. There was instead one goal, to destroy the power of the Danes, and the threat they posed to Sweden once and for all. By launching another deluge at Denmark, Charles Gustav was certainly deviating from the original plan of 1655, but he now faced an animal he believed he could tame, one that would bend and break rather than simply bend under Swedish pressure, and, most importantly for Sweden, one that would give Stockholm clear-cut economic, trade and strategic benefits. The war against Denmark was by no means the only thing going on for the next few years, but it certainly stands as a convenient cut-off point for dividing the different periods of the Swedish deluges. Having spent an appropriate amount of time in Poland, Denmark was now to be the main event. Everything else, Brandenburg, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Cossacks, the Crimean Tartars, the Russians and even Poland itself, was to take a back seat. The Thirty Years' War had not been kind to Denmark. Pegged as the champion of Protestantism during the early stages of the conflict, and boasting a realm geographically destined to dominate Baltic commerce, King Christian IV of Denmark had nonetheless presided over the decline of his kingdom in foreign relations. The decline began in the mid-1620s, when Denmark put itself forward as the heavily subsidised mercenary aimed at the throat of the Habsburg supremacy. Denmark's utter failure in this mission had a lot to do with the empty promises of its so-called allies, but Danish foreign policy also deserved some of the blame for what transpired. The peace treaties signed with the Habsburgs in the late 1620s did not do great damage to Denmark militarily, since the Habsburgs were wary of unifying Scandinavia against them. However, it shattered in an instance any pretense Denmark possessed towards claims of undisputed Baltic supremacy, especially once Sweden in the years afterwards went on to redefine the conflict and carve out a new empire for itself. The two Scandinavian rivals did not forget their old quarrels, though, and to premeditate what the Swedish government expected in 1654, a preemptive strike was launched against the Danes. Known as the Torstensson War, after the Generalissimo, Leonard Torstensson, that commanded its course, 
the war destroyed the Danish claims over its old rival. Sweden, once weak and helpless against its wealthy foe, now usurped its power on all levels, and Denmark appeared finished as a first-rate power in Europe. The Treaty of Bromsebro that had brought the Torstensen War to an end was not forgotten by the Danes, and saw Sweden break out of its Baltic prison by acquiring the once Danish province of Halland that faced the North Sea, strategically vital for Sweden, attempting to immerse itself in foreign trade. The treaty also exempted Sweden from the Sound Jews, a toll on vessels passing through Denmark's dual isle control of the sole waterway out of the Baltic Sea, and the reason for its economic weight in the years before. In 1648, Christian IV died, and his successor had to give in to many of the nobility's demands in order to secure a guaranteed succession. Frederick III, the new Danish king, is unfortunate in history for his circumstances. Had he presided over Denmark at a brighter period in its history, he could have been considered one of the all-time great Danish kings. However, Danish prestige and power was at this point on a landslide in one direction, mostly thanks to the consistent actions of its Swedish neighbour. Jill Lisk, in her book The Struggle for Supremacy in the Baltic, 1600-1721, delivered a scathing review of Frederick's character when she noted that he was, quote, Learned and something of a recluse, had none of the brilliance which characterised his father, although he revealed a great deal more prudence and self-control. But he was no clear-sighted statesman, and certainly not a match for contemporaries of the stature of Jules Mazarin, Johann de Witt or Oliver Cromwell. His decisions in foreign affairs were far from wise, and he failed to appreciate his country's limitations. Frederick's reign would actually bear witness to the transformation of Denmark into an absolute monarchy the first of its kind in Europe, in 1660. Frederick would assess the way the winds were blowing in that year, and use the increased popularity granted by his heroic defence of his capital, which we'll see later, to eliminate the competition of the nobles, and establish the first absolute regime on the continent. Louis XIV may have been the most popular absolute monarch, but Denmark was doing it before it was cool. Jill Lisk does appear to be right about one thing though, Frederick must have been dreaming if he expected Sweden to simply roll over and allow its old rival to simply seize back all that it had lost. Sweden proved capable of redirecting all its force against the Danes in the 1640s. There was no reason why they would have been incapable of reproducing such a feat again. Frederick appears to have thus overestimated the degree to which Sweden was preoccupied in Poland. Perhaps he was unaware of the gradual Swedish withdrawal that had been ongoing for the latter half of 1656, as Charles Gustav came to terms with the reality of the situation. Frederick III actually handed Charles Gustav something of a golden ticket, because he enabled the Swedish king to justify the withdrawal on strategic grounds. In other words, Charles Gustav could explain away the Swedish withdrawal to his people and Europe by pointing to the Danish actions and Charles could also fight a far easier, smaller war in Denmark without having to fear the Danish version of the Polish guerrilla war that had proven so costly. Perhaps most importantly for Sweden diplomatically, though, was the fact that Denmark had signed a defensive alliance with the Dutch in 1649. Once Denmark acted against Sweden first, though, by invading Sweden's German duchies in Bremen that were owned by Charles Gustav's brother-in-law, Frederick IV, the same Frederick IV that had provided the invaluable distractions in the previous campaign against Poland, 
the defensive pact was void, and the Danes were devoid of allies. Perhaps that was where Frederick III believed he had a trump card, though. He had only committed Denmark to the war against Sweden in early 1657, when he learned of the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I's commitment to determinedly aid the Poles. With the Holy Roman Emperor on his side, perhaps Frederick believed he had an ace up his sleeve. Yet, Frederick in this case strikes me as someone who hadn't really done his homework, since, if he had, he would have noted with some trepidation that the Emperor's forces not only had a long distance to travel before they could aid him, but that in the absence of a true Swedish focus on Poland, Swedish diplomats had created a block of their own to counterbalance the resulting power vacuum. It revolved around the Cossacks, somewhat disgruntled after having seen their Russian protector abandon them to fight against the Swedes instead, and the Transylvanians, who ended their series of petty squabbles with the Cossacks so that a military alliance might be forged with them. With Transylvania involved, though, Sweden's diplomats had raised the stakes higher, because it virtually guaranteed the closer involvement of the Habsburgs, who couldn't allow their Transylvanian neighbour to involve itself in their European business. In short, Charles Gustav had created something of a mess for the rest of Europe to clean up, when he turned the best equipped and most experienced portion of his army against the Danes. I want you to keep the image of Charles Gustav gradually siphoning his forces out of Poland and into Royal Prussia in your head for a moment, because it's time to examine in more detail the situation Sweden left behind in Poland. Transylvania, ruled by Prince George Rokocci, had been obligated by Swedish prodding to sign an alliance with the Cossacks on the 7th of September 1656, pledging what amounted to an offensive alliance. With the Cossacks somewhat out of sorts, thanks to the Russian truce with Poland and their war against Sweden, the original force behind the Russo-Polish, and thus the Polish-Swedish war, seemed to have been lost. Yet the Cossacks, based out of the Zaporizhian siege in modern-day Ukraine, were still very much in play, and their importance as a tool of Swedish foreign policy is easily seen here. Transylvania was an easy sell. Since 1653, Transylvania had been allied to Poland and thus at war with the Cossacks, but Prince George was promised the throne of Poland if he aided in the attack upon it, while the Treaty of Radnot in late December 1656 had carved up the Commonwealth and assigned different regions to interested parties, and had listed Krakow as one of the many prizes Transylvania could expect to receive. Such goals might sound a little optimistic, but when the Cossack army of 10,000 linked up with their new Transylvanian allies 25,000 strong, Prince George of Transylvania appeared right to be confident. While on his way towards Krakow, his major target due to the besieged Swedish garrison there, George's army burnt and plundered the surrounding countryside, subjecting Polish lands to yet more devastation and hardship. The national bastion of Polish resistance at Lwów remained in Polish hands, and King John Casimir continued the fight, but it was a sure uphill battle, despite the gradually diminishing Swedish presence. Interestingly, George had been so busy looting that he could only spare 5,000 soldiers in the relief of Swedish forces holed up in Krakow, but half that number stayed behind to defend the city, and the remainder continued their march towards uniting with Charles Gustav's army in early April 1657, at Chmeluf. Once this Swedish Cossack Transylvanian army had united, they sought a battle, with the Polish-Lithuanian forces still in the field, 
but the latter were preoccupied with the idea of raiding Transylvania instead to punish George for throwing his lot in with the Swedes. While distracted though, Charles Gustav led yet another siege of Warsaw, by now the name of that Polish city seemed appropriate, and captured the Polish capital yet again on the 17th of May 1657. This, however, would prove to be the high point of Sweden's combined Polish effort. With the noted intensification of the Danish war, Charles Gustav withdrew from Warsaw, never to return to Poland, and left a scant Swedish garrison to defend it. This made George Wakachi nervous, and he began itching to leave over the Carpathian Mountains so he could ensure his own security and retain all that he had plundered. John Casimir met with his Crimean Tartar allies, as well as his remaining governors, to draw up a plan designed to box George into the Commonwealth and force him to make terms. On the 20th of June 1657, even the scant remaining Swedish force in Warsaw was ordered to withdraw to Stettin in Pomerania. To George, this signalled that the party was in fact over. He sped south as fast as he could, but was caught by Commonwealth troops near Lvov and defeated on the 11th of July. Still reading from this, the entire Transylvanian Cossack force was destroyed by the Commonwealth in a major military coup on the 20th of July, with the disparate Cossack forces splintering off and retreating into the countryside. Therefore, for all intents and purposes, by the late summer, George was back at square one. He only managed to escape the clutches of the Tartars by the skin of his teeth, before returning to Transylvania with a handful of men and no booty to show for his efforts. It had been a wild ride, and as per the terms of the treaty he had signed with the Commonwealth in late July 1657, George would now have to pay for all of it. With the defeat of George appeared the end of the external threats to Polish sovereignty, but some Swedes remained despite the pressing need for force on the newly active Swedish front. Poland-Lithuania had fought a seriously uphill battle for the past two years. Only now did it seem as though the playing field was finally levelling out. By early July 1657, it was clear that Charles Gustav's attentions had been significantly turned away from Poland. The war against Poland remained in place and showed little signs of ending, but it did show signs of slowing down in intensity. The kind of land grabs and victories won by the Swedes in the early phases of the war were entirely absent by 1657, with the exception of the seizing of Warsaw for the umpteenth time. Holding victories were won against the Poles, who still couldn't hold a candle to Swedish professionalism, but the playing field was slowly but surely levelling out. Primarily this was due to Charles Gustav's recognition that the Polish situation had changed. Sweden could not conquer all of Poland, but it could not be seen to abandon it either, unless it was for a good reason. Thus, when it became clear that the Holy Roman Emperor was in the process of crafting an anti-Swedish league, following the Habsburg Declaration of War in late 1656, it was only a matter of time before Sweden's embittered enemy Denmark appeared on the scene as a potential recruit. Frederick III of Denmark had reason to expect great things from attacking Sweden while the latter waged an unfavourable war in the depths of Central Europe. Yet what Frederick III seems not to have realised was the versatility of the Swedes, who were able to turn their best against Denmark at the crucial hour and render any element of surprise he thought he had gained non-existent. 
Sweden had not destroyed Poland totally, but it had reduced her to the status of a second-rate power after 1657. The Commonwealth would require a lot of time and money to regain what it had lost, and with the distraction established by Swedish diplomats in the form of the Cossack-Transylvanian alliance, Swedish arms and capabilities were seemingly at their highest point yet. Sweden thus didn't lose face when the war changed in appearance from a central European slog to a Danish blitz. Charles Gustav had made his point to Europe. Sweden could defeat Poland and had many times over. His empire was now moving on to better things. Denmark had overrun Bremen, the German duchy just below its borders on the Jutland Peninsula. Bremen had once been a Danish holding owing to its geographical importance and this had granted Christian IV a place at the Holy Roman Empire's princely college. Denmark had since lost this position with the Treaty of Bromsebro in 1645, but her ambitions remained in place to reacquire what had been lost, and with Sweden distracted the opportunity seemed ideal. It was a misleading impression of events that guided Frederick to make war against his better neighbour. With the war in place at Denmark's initiative, the Danish defensive pact with the Dutch was void, and Denmark was exposed to whatever the Swedes could muster, while moreover the emperor who had sought the Danish intervention in the first place was himself unable to make good any aid of his own. Sweden overran the Danish Jutland Peninsula by midsummer, 1657. Sweeping away the pathetic Danish defence and chasing the main Danish force to the relatively new fortress town of Frederiksode. Literally, Frederick's point. On the 24th of August 1657, the siege of this new settlement began. But there was no indication that success was guaranteed to the Swedes. Frederiksode had been built for the express purpose of defending the Danish Straits by land, following the Torstensen War by the 1640s. If anything could slow the Swedes down, it would be this fortress town, garrisoned by 8,000 well-provisioned Danes, who were also supplied by sea. As the siege dragged on past September 1657 and impatience set into the Swedish high command, the Swedish offensive seemed to have stalled. Most troubling for Charles Gustav was not the military situation, though. It was what had just occurred in the diplomatic sphere. The 6th of November 1657 is a momentous day in German history, because on that day the Polish king recognised the hereditary rights of the electors of Brandenburg to inherit the Duchy of Ducal Prussia, or East Prussia. In other words, the Brandenburg elector Frederick William, having placed himself in such an important position during these northern wars, now asked, as the price for leaving the Swedish and joining the Polish Habsburg side, the right to call East Prussia part of his realm, with no strings or homage attached. It was a monumental event, because since the Middle Ages Ducal Prussia had come under the suzerainty of Polish kings, and before then the Teutonic Knights had ruled over it. Some regard this agreement as the worst mistake in Polish history, while others grant that the Allies had little choice if they really wanted to entice Frederick William out of the Swedish service. The reason why the great elector had opted for the Habsburg-Polish side was because, although Sweden had signed a total of three treaties regarding the status of Brandenburg and East Prussia in 1656, all of these treaties continued to refer to East Prussia as a duchy owned by Sweden but ruled by Brandenburg. 
This meant that the Brandenburg electors would have to pay homage to the Swedish king. However, what the Poles basically did in this Treaty of Wailau, signed on the 19th of September but ratified alongside other agreements on the 6th of November 1657 in the Treaty of Bromberg, was hand Ducal Prussia over to the Brandenburgers. In practical terms, of course, Poland did not physically possess any part of Ducal Prussia in 1657, since Brandenburg garrisoned it, and Sweden remained far more capable of defending or invading the region than Poland. But Poland had history on its side. Before the deluge, it had been Poland, not Sweden, that the Brandenburg elector had paid homage to for Ducal Prussia. The weight of tradition and history, the frankly great deal that was on offer, and the fact that Sweden was distracted by the Danes, likely persuaded the wily elector to take the Polish deal, and in the process he changed German history forever. Because of Frederick William's decision here, future Brandenburg electors could and would style themselves as Prussian kings, tapping into the military traditions of the Teutonic Knights. It is because of this little-known treaty made by the great elector that we know Brandenburg as Prussia in most games or histories. It is because of this treaty that we know Frederick the Great as the King of Prussia rather than the Elector of Brandenburg. And of course, it is because of all these facts that the Elector Frederick William of Brandenburg came to be called the Great Elector. But the end of his rule over the Electorate in 1686, after a rule that had begun in 1640 when Brandenburg was on the edge of despair, nobody could deny that Brandenburg had arrived on the scene, least of all Sweden since this treaty dramatically limited the now surrounded Swedish Empire's diplomatic prospects. Paul Douglas Lockhart, in his book Sweden in the 17th Century, called Frederick William's decision to sign the Treaty of Bromberg, quote, a brilliant demonstration at diplomatic realpolitik, end quote. Jill Lisk also commented on the event by noting the diplomatic ring that now encircled Sweden when it was at its most vulnerable in the Siege of Frederick's Ode. Quote, it was confidently expected that Frederiksod would contain the Swedes, and the Danish fleet was able to prevent the Swedish navy from attacking the islands. Moreover, Poland had made an alliance with Denmark in August 1657, and the following month the Treaty of Wailau between Poland and Brandenburg was signed. By this agreement, Poland acknowledged the sovereignty of Frederick William in East Prussia, and the latter, having abandoned the Swedes, offered his support to Denmark. There was now a real possibility that the Swedish army might be cut off in Jutland, besieged by the combined troops of Brandenburg, Poland and Austria. End quote. Although Christopher Clarke in his book Iron Kingdom, The Rise and Downfall of Prussia, notes that the agreement at Wailau did not solve all of Frederick William's problems with the East Prussian nobility or estates, who still viewed themselves as separate from Brandenburg, total sovereignty was only a matter of time. Frederick William had overcome the most important obstacle. As far as Europe was concerned, East Prussia after 1660 was bound to Brandenburg and was undisputably his. The Prussian nobles could be won in time. The significance of the Treaty of Wailau was likely not overtly considered by Charles Gustave. As his forces remained on the attack in their siege of the last Danish stronghold of the Jutland Peninsula. Charles Gustave must now have feared the possibility of his enemies uniting and sending an army up the peninsula after him. If the combined army defeated him, the Swedish king would be stranded in enemy territory, while even if they did not seek him out, 
they could still ravage his Pomeranian holdings or trouble his significant garrisons in royal Prussia. Poland had been eager to expel the occupying Swedish soldiers from this region since 1655, and the Swedish failure to take Danzig signalled to the Swedes that Polish resistance here was at least more considerable than Polish resistance elsewhere. Yet the Swedes still clung to much of Royal Prussia. With the Poles still mostly reeling, the Brandenburgers too small to combat the Swedes by themselves, and the Emperor in the process of moving more significant forces up to the north, Charles Gustav of Sweden did have some time to act before the numbers went against him. Fate seemed on his side when the decision was made to rush the Danish garrison at Frederiksode on the 24th of October 1657. When the great fortress fell to the Swedes, along with the valuable war stores of the entire Jutland Peninsula and 6,000 of Denmark's finest soldiers, Charles Gustav could at least be confident that if an Allied army did come from from the south, he would be ready and able to face it. Then Charles got word of an interesting and historic development. For the first time in living memory, owing to the bitter cold of the oncoming winter, eyewitnesses had testified that the three waterways in between the two main Danish islands of Funen and Zeeland had frozen over. Danish strategy had relied on the part played by its navy and its waterways for defence, just like it had done in the 1620s. If these same waterways froze over, then it would simply be a case of marching across the frozen ground and attacking the remaining Danes as though they were a land power. In short, Denmark's sole defensive strategy would be void. But was the ice thick enough to hold Swedish men, cavalry and guns? After a close inspection, however they managed to gauge this, Swedish engineers concluded that some points of the ice would withstand a march. Charles Gustav had his answer. He would take the riskier route and attack his Danish foe, rather than retreating from the Jutland Peninsula with an indecisive result. It was certainly a course full of risk, but Charles Gustav was about to prove he was worthy of the task. This series has been broken into five parts for easier listening. You have reached the end of part four, but part five remains, so please check the feed to begin listening to this final aspect of the Swedish deluges. This episode has examined the diplomatic responses to Charles Gustav and how the Swedish king felt he had to react to the growing weight of foreign opinion set against him. The Danish decision to enter the war was covered in its initial stages, as well as the elector. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Brandenburg's incredibly significant deal with the Poles, that some switched sides in return for an eternal recognition of Brandenburg's sovereignty over East Prussia, with no strings attached. In the next episode, the end game of the war begins. Denmark faces the full weight of the Swedish invasion, as Charles Gustav sets out to prove just how much of his uncle's blood really flows through his veins. See you then. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.